welcome back to a new episode of Paranormal Stories and Spooky Shiz. I'm your host, Chappie, and I'm trying to record an episode on my phone for the very first time, as we are in the mountains of Tennessee for Christmas with our family. So if you hear any screams or yells in the background, it's definitely not the souls of the damned. It's just my nieces and nephews upstairs. So with that being said, I would like to get into the history of telling ghost stories around Christmas and some spooky stories that have happened around Christmas. Alright, with that being said, let's jump into it. Alright. So we go over to Ranker.com, where they have an article called Allegedly True Paranormal Stories Revolving Around Christmas by Kelly Kreiss. When conjuring up stories of ghostly legends and paranormal encounters, the Christmas season isn't exactly what comes to mind. With its tree-filled windows and light-strewn rooftops, Christmas is typically admired as as a time for being with loved ones giving heartfelt gifts, and snuggling up next to a warm fire for some hot cocoa. But what happens when something goes bump in the night, and it's not Santa Claus? Christmas ghost stories are far more common than people might expect. In fact, sharing ghost stories for years past was once the Christmas Eve tradition. So before you unwrap any presents, let these scary ghost stories help you get you into the Christmas spirit. Quite literally. All right, number one, the legend of the mistletoe bridge haunts England's Bramshill house. The legend of the mistletoe bride has been retold for centuries and has taken many forms. While the story's true origin is difficult to determine, many have come to believe its roots are in the disappearance of Lord Lovell's bride at the Bramshill house in Hampshire, England. Allegedly, Lord Lovell was preparing to wed a young woman related to Sir John Cope, the owner of Bramshaw House. This was around Christmas time, so mistletoe hung throughout the mansion, inspiring the wedding party to play a game. The young bride-to-be would hide somewhere in the mansion. The groomsmen would all seek her out, and whomever found her first would get to kiss her. So the bride went to hide, and the wedding party sought her. However, The minutes turned to hours, and they still could not find her. Eventually, the game turned terribly serious, as no matter where they looked, she remained missing. Not until 50 years later did Lord Lovell, still seeking answers to his bride's disappearance, happen upon a secret closet in an upstairs room in the Bramshaw house. Inside, he found a wooden chest sealed shut with a lock. Upon opening the chest, he found the nearly unrecognizable remains of his bride. Very creepy. Number two, the brown lady of Raymond Hall wanders the passages every Christmas. The brown lady of Raymond Hall has perplexed visitors and paranormal investigators for hundreds of years. Back in the 1700s, Charles Townshend married a young woman named Dorothy Walpole. While they lived happily together for some time in Raymond Hall, Townshend soon became paranoid that his new wife was being unfaithful to him, eventually driving himself mad with jealousy. 
He decided to hide Dorothy away in the hall, telling all of their friends and family that she had tragically passed. Dorothy was forced to stay inside the mansion, allowed only to wander through its halls. Not long after, she perished, never having left Raymond Hall, after her husband imprisoned her. Ever since her passing, people have witnessed the image of a woman in tattered brown dress wandering through the halls, and some of these reports encounters are truly horrifying. One visitor, unaware of the brown lady's legend, approached a woman in the hall, only to have her look at him with a glowing face where her eyes should have been. There were only empty sockets. Years later, after numerous other reported sightings, a photographer for Country Life magazine visited Raymond Hall to document it for an article. After snapping a photograph of the central stairwell, he saw within the image a hazy silhouette that some believe is none other than Dorothy Walpole, the brown lady. Number three, alleged phantoms plagued a Brooklyn home during Christmas time. A few weeks before Christmas in 1878, Edward Smith was at his home in Brooklyn, New York, when the doorbell rang. He answered the door, but there was no one there. This soon became a nightly occurrence. The doorbell would ring, only for Smith to find no one outside, and no signs anyone had been there at all. Growing frustrated, Smith sprinkled ash and flour along the path to the door, expecting to find footprints left behind. But the, disturb er, but the substances were undisturbed, and the noises continued. No matter where he and his family stood around the house, the noise remained unidentifiable. Smith and his family were growing more concerned, as the doorbell ringing turned to aggressive barging on the doors. Eventually, they contacted the police. The ringing and barging continued, and still no one was able to identify its source. One night, a brick suddenly flew through the window from the outside, even though police officers were standing nearby and saw no one. Although they investigated the home for some time, police were unable to identify the cause of the disturbance. Smith and those who witnessed the strange occurrences ultimately concluded they must be paranormal in nature. Number four, the ghost of Sir Geoffrey de Mandeville and his headless dog roamed the streets on Christmas Eve. The story of Sir Geoffrey de Mandeville is brimming with political betrayals. He held the title of Earl of Essex and was the prestigious European landowner during the 1100s. Because of his title, he had a great influence over royal politics at the time. However, when a debate emerged regarding the rightful heir to the throne, he chose the losing side and was promptly stripped of many of his assets and excommunicated from the church. During his excommunication, Sir Geoffrey was slain on the battlefield. But because of his exile, he was not allowed to properly a proper Christian internment, which many believe left his spirit trapped within the earthly realm. Rumor claims that Sir Joffrey also left a curse on the properties he owned, stating that should they ever be taken away from him, ruin would befall the betrayer, and every six years on Christmas Eve, he and a headless dog would haunt the lands draped in a red cloak. Ever since his demise, people have visited the properties he once owned, particularly the Pimsbrook Bridge in East Barnett. 
have reported hearing strange sounds and witnessing the hazy image of a headless dog breaking through the fog, accompanied by a knight in full armor and a red cloak. Number five, an old Victorian house is allegedly haunted by an eccentric woman every Christmas. One of the group of ghosts from the Stark family has created quite a legacy for themselves. The Starks left behind numerous spirits that are now haunting a Victorian home in Ludington, Michigan, and visitors have reported numerous sightings, particularly around Christmas. One such specter, Vera Stark, was well known in her life for her eccentricities and seems to have brought them into her afterlife. Those who claim to have seen her ghost say she appears in the front yard of the home wearing a full fur coat and picking flowers, as she did in life. In addition, the ghost of, the, of one of the Stark's daughters, who suffered a terrible mishap in the mansion's gymnasium, can allegedly be seen walking the halls of the home. The current owners of the home have even attempted to open it up to historical tours, but they apparently ran into problems. Our spirits did not care for it being open to the public, and it went wild. Alright, number six. A ghost supposedly disrupted a Christmas party at Alcatraz. Alcatraz, the isolated penitentiary located in the middle of California's San Francisco Bay, closed down in 1963. But tales of those who were once held on the island continue to haunt generations of onlookers and visitors. Often referred to as The Rock, Alcatraz has gained a reputation for unexplainable and shocking ghost encounters, and one of the most notable was recounted during Christmas. Back in the 1940s, while the facility was still in operation, the warden at the time, Warden Johnston, decided to throw a small Christmas party at his boarding house on the island. During the gathering, a few of the guards began retelling the story of a phantom figure who appeared before them, wearing a gray suit, trimmed or brimmed hat, and sporting mutton-chop sideburns. All of the guards could do was state that the ghostly figure, they stared at it in shock, and before they had a chance to move, the room suddenly turned very cold, and the fire in the Ben Franklin stove was extinguished, and just as suddenly as he appeared, the Phantom Man had vanished. Number 7. Headless Horseman Allegedly Haunts Ruse Hall Every December Ruse Hall, a mysterious mansion in the English countryside, is rumored to be one of the most haunted places in England. Located just outside of the small town of Beckles in the country of Suffolk, or the county of Suffolk, the mansion has accumulated plenty of ghost stories ever since it was first built in the 16th century. One of the most horrifying stories is that of the Headless Horseman. Many people may be familiar with this legend, but at Roos Hall, it takes on a life of its own. Numerous visitors to Roos Hall have reported a man on a horse riding toward them on the road, only to discover that he has no head. Allegedly, on Christmas Eve, the headless man is often seen clattering down the driveway in his phantom coach and four horses. And this is only the beginning of Ruse Hall ghostly existence. Other rumors claim that there are strange markings inside the hall, known as the Devil's Footprints, and some have even reported seeing a girl watching them from the windows.
Number eight, Anne Boleyn is said to return to her childhood home every Christmas Eve. Hever Castle, which is nestled deep in the British countryside of Kent, was once home to the Boleyn family. Anne Boleyn, the most well-known member of the family, lived the early part of her life there before she married King Henry VIII. Within a few short years of her marriage, however, Anne was targeted by dissent and gossip within the castle, accusing her of everything from witchcraft to adultery. Eventually, her husband formally accused her of these charges, and she was ultimately executed. While she suffers from heartbreak and her homesickness, Anne Boleyn's spirit is said to haunt the halls of her childhood home. Hiver Castle, however, she alleges only appears on one day of the year, Christmas Eve. Rumors persist that her somber specter is seen drifting silently over the picturesque bridge that spans the river Eden, the grounds of the home where she knew much happiness. Number 9. A spectral socialite is said to sing Christmas carols at the Hotel Bethlehem. Hotel Bethlehem, located in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, is home to a number of chilling ghost stories, not the least of which centers around a young girl named Mary Yo. Born in 1866, Mary, or May, was raised on stage, inspiring with her a love for singing and performing from a young age. Her talent gained her much attention, and eventually she found herself performing the great success on stage in Paris and throughout Europe. She even caught the attention of a wealthy lord who quickly married her and made her a member of British aristocracy. Tragically, her success led her down a dangerous path. Her marriage fell apart after the lord who swept her off her feet went bankrupt, and she went on to marry an American soldier who robbed her of much of her wealth. At the time of her eventual passing, reports claimed that she recalled the years in Bethlehem as the best of her life. To this day, Hotel Bethlehem's visitors claim to see an apparition of a young May Yo, dressed in elegant attire and either singing at the piano or pacing next to the Christmas tree. Some even claim to have heard her faint but recognizable voice singing one of her favorite songs. Number 10. A slain highwayman support supposedly reappears each Christmas Eve. In England, one particularly twisted ghost story harkens back to a tragic event that occurred one Christmas Eve in the late 18th century. According to the legend, there was once a fearsome highwayman, known only as Gilbert, who would wander up and down one of the town's main roads. One evening, the night before Christmas, a man and his daughter were traveling in a horse-drawn coach when Gilbert apprehended them. The daughter was able to exit the coach, but before her father could disembark, the horses became startled and bolted down the road with the man and his coachman in tow. The two men struggled to get the horses back under control so they could go back and fight the man, find the man's daughter, who had been left behind with Gilbert. However, when they arrived back at the scene, she was nowhere to be found. Instead, they saw Gilbert hunched over the ground with a dagger in his side. Rumors claim that once the coach took off down the road, Gilbert revealed to the girl that he was the one who took her brother's life some time before. Thrown into a rage by the revelation, she stabbed him and fled the scene. 
Local legends say that Gilbert was buried by the side of the road, and every Christmas Eve he can be seen wandering the same road, waiting for the coach with the man and his daughter to pass by again. Number 11. A Christmas ghost is said to haunt Bastion Square in Victoria, British Columbia. On December 25, 1890, a disturbing story appeared on the front page of Victoria newspaper, The Daily Colonist. Just as the clock was striking midnight, ushering the joyous Christmas day, a misdeed as dark, cowardly, and mysterious as ever disfigured the history of the province was perpetuated. The target, who went by the name of David Fee, was only 21 years old and had been walking to meet his parents for the evening mass at the nearby church after attending a costume party. Dressed up in a white clown costume, Fee had just arrived at the corner where the cathedral sat when a man burst out of the shadows and said, er, and aimed a double barrel directly at him. The man simply said, you challenged me. Before Fee could speak, the man fired and Fee perished within moments. Apparently, the man had confused Fee for another man. Ever since that tragic night, Fee's ghost is rumored to roam the streets outside the cathedral as well as his gravesite. Number 12. Rosh's revelers are said to ring in the season at the Crescent Hotel. The Crescent Hotel is by far one of the most notoriously haunted hotels in the U.S. Located in the northern border of Arkansas near the Ozark National Forest, the hotel has been plagued by tragedy and ghost stories since it was first erected in the 1880s. While there are different legends and ghostly sightings associated with almost every square inch of the hotel's estate, one story continues to astonish visitors to this day. Allegedly, one year during Christmas time, visitors came to view the hotel's Christmas tree, only to find that the Christmas tree and all of its packages were mysteriously moved to the other side of the room. This could have been a prank staged by hotel staff or a visitor, however the occurrence was accompanied by sightings of various phantom spirits dressed in Victorian era clothing, wandering aimlessly around the hotel's dining room. Some said the spirits appeared to be playful, and they moved the gifts and furniture across the room as a joke. This seemingly confirmed when the hotel staff reportedly returned the next day, only to find that everything was back in the exact same place it was supposed to be. 13. The ghosts of Poland's kings are said to gather in a dragon's den on Christmas Eve. In the middle of Krakow, Poland, sits the Wawel Castle, which for centuries served as the home of each of Poland's kings after it was built in the early Middle Ages. Since this time, it has been associated with numerous legends and ghost stories spanning as far back as prehistoric era. One such legend involves a large series of caves that are rumored to exist under the plot of a nearby land known as Wawel Hill. These caves have been explored countless times since they were discovered centuries ago, and they're rumored to hold a statue of a dragon and a millennia of human record. The caves are believed to be inhabited by humans during the prehistoric era. The legend says that the 11th century King Casimir, who was, the who was a child at the time, explored these caves 
and came across a strange tunnel. Inside the tunnel, he claimed to have found a large stone emitting glowing light, and from this light, a magical protective energy is said to have been emitted throughout Krakow. To this day, local legends claim that the ghosts of all of Poland's kings meet every Christmas Eve in that very tunnel to confer upon the fate of Krakow. All right, very cool article. Let's take a short break and get right back at it after this. All right, we hop on over to Cafe Mom, where there is an article by Linda Sharp's Five True Christmas Ghost Stories to Keep You Awake at Night Until Santa Comes. All right, so let's jump into it and see if these are really scary. Christmas and ghost stories may not immediately seem like two great tastes that taste great together, but they're actually a perfect natural fit. Although it's largely forgotten now, the practice of gathering around the fire to tell spooky ghost stories was a popular Victorian Christmas tradition for years, as evidenced in a line from It's a Wonderful Life, or It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year. There will be scary ghost stories and tales of the glories of Christmases long, long ago. The Dickens classic, A Christmas Carol, is probably the only remaining of a haunting that most of us associate with the holidays. But why let the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and yet to come have all the fun? Here for your festively creepy pleasure are five Christmas ghost stories that may send chills down your spine. Or, oddly enough, warm your heart. Alright. The Bright Light and Calm Watchdog I had an unusual visitor on Christmas Day, 2008, and I'm pretty sure it wasn't Santa Claus passing by my house in Bloomington, Indiana. The day started in typical fashion with the opening of gifts around the Christmas tree. I served an early Christmas dinner for family and friends, and everyone departed by 5 p.m., except my sister and brother-in-law, who lived with me. They were sleeping in a bedroom at the end of the hall with the door open. I went into my bedroom with my dog, Toby, and shut the door securely. I was just dozing off when I heard the latch on my bedroom door open. I waited several seconds for my sister or brother-in-law to ask me whatever they came to say, but there was no sound. It was almost 7 p.m., so my bedroom was pitch black. I had left lights on in the kitchen and the bathroom, and there were lots of Christmas lights in the living room, so the hallway would have been well lit. I would be able to see whoever was at my door just by lifting my head. I pushed the blankets down and lifted my head from the pillow, and just as I would have been able to see who was in the doorway, an extremely bright light hit me right in the eyes. I shielded my eyes and yelled, Turn that blank light! You're blinding me! The light immediately disappeared, and I heard the bedroom door latch closed. My bedside light is a touch lamp, so I tapped it and looked around the bedroom. There was no one in the bedroom except me and Toby, and Toby jumped off the bed and went to the door without showing any sign of alarm. At first I wasn't frightened because Toby is a Dutch Shepherd, well trained to be an excellent watchdog and proven personal protection dog. Since Toby was already up, I decided to let him outside and see what sis or brother-in-law needed. When I went into the hallway, I could see both of them still in bed. I took Toby to the living room and let him outside. There was no one there either. So who opened my bedroom door and turned a spotlight on my face? 
Like most people, the thoughts of loved ones are always close at hand during the holiday season. When I went to lie down, I was thinking how happy I was that my small family had enjoyed a pleasant Christmas. But it would have been so much better if my mother and brother had been there, had still been alive, to share it with us. I would like to think it was my brother's spirit stopping by to say, Merry Christmas, I still think of you too. I haven't been able to debunk this strange event or find any kind of rational explanation. I'm half afraid that my heart stopped during my sleep and the light I saw was the bright light people report after near-death experiences. Leave it to me to see the stairway to heaven and ruin my chance at eternal paradise by saying, turn that blank light. (laughs) I've made a mental note that if I ever see another bright light to clean up my language just in case. And that was from Scarlet. Alright, this one is The Returned Relative. It was Christmas time of 1995 or 96 at my aunt's house on a reservation in North Dakota. Some of my family was in the living room watching television. The kids were playing in the rooms or sleeping, and my uncle and aunt and I were sitting at the table putting a puzzle together. My cousin, who worked at a casino, would come home around midnight or 1 a.m., This night, as she pulled up and was walking toward the house, she looked in the window and saw me sitting at the table, my uncle sitting across from me, and someone standing to the left of me, and someone standing in the corner. So she continued to walk in the house, thinking nothing of it. As we were sitting there talking, she looked at me and asked who was standing next to me a few minutes ago. Who was standing, or who was in the corner? I told her no one, and she said, yeah, there was someone standing next to you. It looked like your mom. She was playing with your hair. I have long hair, which I used to wear down all the time. She said this person was running her hands on my hair like a mother does to a child. It kind of freaked me out, because being as I was probably only 12 or 13 at the time, my cousin swears up and down that someone was standing over me, rubbing my head and watching me put the puzzle together with my aunt and uncle and that there was another person standing behind this person. We got around to thinking it was probably her mom she saw. She passed away on her birthday a week before Christmas back in 1992. In my family, we consider your aunts and uncles to be like moms and dads. After thinking that it could have been her, it didn't scare me so much. However, she couldn't figure, we couldn't figure out who the person was standing in the corner and always around Christmas time, something strange always happens, and we just think it's her visiting us. Alright, very cool. The Haunted Tree. My parents and I lived in a small home that was around 90 years old. The year would have been 1996. We lived there for the time I was 7 years old to the time I was 19. From the very days that we moved in, I felt that I was not alone. One year, around Christmas time, I was having a friend spend the night. The heat had just shut off briefly, and she and I were sitting in the living room watching television when the temperature dropped substantially. As I rose to turn up the heat, the Christmas tree began to shake violently. Ornaments were falling off right and left, and she and I were terrified. We ran upstairs and lay down on my bed. My white cat curled up with us, and my door was open slightly. When I gazed out at the dark hallway, I was horrified to see a tall, white figure run down the hall. I turned to my friend, and she acknowledged that she had seen the exact same thing. 
She never spent the night with me ever again. And that came from Caitlin. All right. The figure in the recliner. My mother, to whom I was very close, passed away in 1964 when I was 17 years old. I left home that year and moved to Ontario from Nova Scotia. In 1969, I met a girl who I will call Karen, and we got married in the March of 1970. In December of 1971, we were expecting our first child. We were living in a small one-and-a-half-bedroom bungalow. There was a fireplace in the living room. My wife and I loved the fireplace, and we had lit it every night. It was Christmas Eve, 1971, and we had just finished putting the gifts under the tree, and a nice fire gave off a beautiful glow. On the tree, one string of lights, which was supposed to flash, had stopped several days before. It was five minutes to midnight when the fireplace suddenly just about went out, and the string of lights started to flash. The other lights stopped flashing. My wife and I were sitting on the floor, and it became very chilly in the room. I looked over to my lazy boy chair, and a figure was sitting there, my mother, with a big beautiful smile on her face. My wife, who had never seen my mother, said she could see the same thing. This ghost never spoke, but just kept looking at me and my wife and smiling. At 12 midnight, the fire in the fireplace started up again, and the lights on the tree stopped flashing, and the others started flashing again. I looked over in the chair, and the ghost was gone. No matter what I did to those Christmas lights, they never flashed again. That came from Arthur. Alright. The Ghostly Christmas Choir. On Christmas Eve night, 1978, at about 3 a.m. in Klamath Falls, Oregon, I was suddenly awakened by a choir singing. The house was new construction, miles from the nearest church. I strained to hear any words that I could understand or a tune I could identify, but I could not understand the language or the tune. I did get a feeling of angelic exaltation, reverence, and gladness of heart. This was truly a heavenly choir lifting their voices on high, singing Hosanna in the highest in an unknown language, without accompaniment of instruments. I examined the TV but it was turned off, as was the radio. I explored outside, but the singing was not heard outdoors. The way the countless male, female, and children's voices intertwined together, the tone was going from operatic highs to deepest bass voices in perfect harmony. It, was, it must have lasted about 10 minutes, but it was touching for an eternity. And that came from Mel. All right. Very cool article. Let's see. I saw on this one, it was uh, on Fodors.com, Fodors Travel. There's an article by Jesse Tebbett, Seven Spooky Legends from Around the World. Right. The first one, of course, we can't go an episode on Christmas without mentioning. There is Krampus. Where? Germany, Austria, and Italy. Though the specific origins of the infamous beast are unknown, Krampus is the opposite of Saint Nick. Half goat and half straight up horned demon. This European legend loves to devour children around the holidays who have misbehaved. 
In a turn of additional terror, there are notable celebrations intended to honor Krampus, such as the Krampus Run, though it's been canceled many years due to COVID, where participants dress in elaborate, expensive costumes and descend upon the Munich Christmas Market. Number two, Gryla and her offspring. Another terror to youngsters, Ogre Gryla has been around since the 13th century and is said to have children who are trolls herself. Thirteen children to be exact, each with a creepy name like Pot Scraper or Door Slammer. Anyway, these Yule Lads, as they are called, emerge from their cavernous home to assist their mom, who also ventures out of said cave in rounding up naughty children to eat and be annoying. They live up to their above-mentioned names, like Door Slammer, over the two weeks leading up to Christmas. Fun fact, one variation of Gryla's tale mentions that she has a husband, Laplotti, who is lazy and just hangs back in the cave when she ventures out. Alright. If you've ever seen the horse skull person around Christmas, this is Mary Lewid. Mary Lewid is the textbook definition of nightmare fuel, and I'm sorry for providing that here. However, the iconic holiday tradition, which is said to be derived from some sort of religious rite, likely pagan, in the early 1800s, simply could not be left off the list. The celebration takes place around Christmas time and involves Welsh residents donning horse skulls or placing a horse skull on a stick and heading door to door singing to homeowners. There is a silver lining to this terror, though. If you encounter a horse skull on your doorstep, congratulations, you're the receiver of good luck. Hans Trap. Ah, the classic tale of a man selling his soul to become rich in the 15th century. As legend has it, this time around, once greedy M. Trapp did so. The Catholic Church got word of it, stripped him of his wealth, and exiled him from society. Lonely and mad, Trapp lived out the rest of his days at a cabin high in the mountains somewhere in Alsace-Lorraine. One day, a small boy came across the dwelling, and a hungry, unstable trap cooked him for dinner. As fate would have it, though, before he could dig in, trap was struck by a lightning and killed. His story lives on in the form of a boogeyman-like tale that says he sometimes returns to civilization on Christmas, going door-to-door -door in search of another meal. Alright, Calaconzaros. Eastern Europe. From late Christmas to early January, these werewolf-like creatures reportedly come out, or up, rather, as they spend the rest of the year underground, at night to play, and generally cause trouble. After they've had their fill of above-ground mischief, they return to their home at the center of the earth. Rumor has it that leaving a colander on your doorstep is the best practice to ward them off. Number five, the Yule Cat. Iceland seems to have no shortage of Christmas terrors, and the Yule Cat is certainly a force on the list to be reckoned with. In short, Yule Cat is a giant cat who punishes people for not working hard. 
Legend has it that this palatial whiskered animal once roamed the Icelandic countryside, looking for those, especially children around the holidays, who had not received clothing or done their chores. For a little more context, kids who worked hard throughout the year were treated with fresh garments just before New Year. Those who didn't were deemed lazy. The Yule Cat feeds off of such laziness, literally. Some tales specify that the Yule Cat also belonged to Gryla, who used it as a hunting pet of sorts. Additionally, Yule Cat was used as a driving force for employers to ensure their workers made their quotas. Number 7. Fra Perchta A witch who calls the Austrian mountains home, Fra Perchta, goes on a little vacation, so to speak, every 12 days of Christmas to murder, via disembowelment, those who have been bad. Alternatively, if they are on the good list, people living in the area where Fra Perchta scours could wake up with a silver coin at some point in those day, 12 days. In a plot twist of sorts, Perchta is celebrated by the fearless, fairy tale fans in some villages who don masks as part of the festivals and view her as a powerful figure whom other holiday demons like Krampus or other participants of arguably cursed SantaCon stand no chance against. Alright, very cool. A little synopsis of that. Alright. Let's see what else we can get into. Alright, we go over to internationalstoryteller.com where we have seven short scary Christmas stories to tell. Number one, Creepy Christmas. A first year student arrives home. Her cousins offer to stay, but she waves them off. Nice to be alone in the house for a change. Vaguely, she noticed an unfamiliar car parked in the street. As she sat down on the couch, she heard a knock on the front door. She opened the door to a man who asked, Is that car for sale? His next question was, Is there someone else at home I can talk to? She hastily shuts the door, hides, and hears bumping and breaking as the man finds another way into the house. Luckily, her uncle arrives in time to beat him off. Number two. The Grither. When his children ask for a scary story on Christmas Eve, the father tells about the Grither, a fearsome monster about whom it is said he will come to get you when you don't finish his story. He lives in the North Pole, the father says, while the mother urges him to finish the story quickly. Of course he's not real, the father says. The children beg him to finish the story. Then two giant hands reach through the window and pop the heads off the father and the mother. They didn't finish his story. Number three, a spy cam in my Christmas tree. A father puts a spy cam in the Christmas tree. Then he dresses up as Santa Claus and does everything Santa Claus is supposed to do. The following day, they watch the recording with their two little girls. They are over the moon to see Santa. The video continues playing as they unwrap the gifts. There is one strange little box. One of the girls says that it must be from Santa's elf. Then they look carefully on the recording. They see the elf. He bites off the head of a cookie and turns the camera off. No one knows what he did after that. Number 4. The Snowman 
A man stays in a solitary cabin in the middle of a snowy forest. He wakes up in the middle of the night and looks outside. He sees a snowman standing in the distance. Very strange, because no people live there to make a snowman. The next day, the snowman is still there. He wakes up again during the night and sees the snowman again. In the morning, he goes out for a closer look. Nobody is there. He knocks the snowman down. The following night, something is hitting the window. And it just ends. <laughs> Number five. Suppose you want a PlayStation. You could not get it at the store. It is sold out. You could not get it online. It's too expensive. Then you spot one online for a reasonable price. You contact the seller and he proposes to bring it to your home. Hmm, you think. What about a public place? But you reluctantly agree. A van pulls up to your home. A man walks to your door. No PlayStation to be seen. It's in the car, he says. Then you don't buy his story and close the door. You hear him slamming something into the door. Later, you find a bloody knife embedded in the door. That's creepy. Six, Christmas singers. My grandfather drank. My father drank. I never touched the drink. Every Christmas evening, my father and grandfather would gather a group of friends and sing carols house to house. One Christmas Eve, I went with them. It was cold and snowy, and we stopped in an old, odd-looking house. Scary inhabitants of the house offer my grandfather a drink. He drinks, but it turns out to be blood. He dies, and all of us wake up a little bit later to see the inhabitants of the house gone. 7. True, True Christmas Story When we drive home from the restaurant where we spend Christmas night, we stop at a gas station. Then my family goes out to pee. I stay in the car. Suddenly, I see a man standing in the dark, staring at me. He walks over to the car. I can't see his face very well. Luckily, my family comes back. We drove off. At night, I can't sleep. Suddenly, I hear the window breaking. I look outside and see the same man. I scream. My dad wakes up and we call the police. They search the surrounding to find the man. The following day, we see the back door has been damaged. He almost got in. Right, very cool. Those were some creepy stories. Alright. Let's see. Let's get into um, more of like the history of telling ghostly traditions during the holidays after we take a short break. And uh, yeah. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. How Ghost Stories Became a Christmas Tradition in Victorian England by Elizabeth Yuko. Right, we are on history.com. 
Towards the end of the year, as fireplaces are lit and hot cocoa is made, Americans have made it a tradition to revisit their favorite classic holiday movies, books, and songs. And though Christmas stories may seem out of place in present-day American holiday celebrations, they were once a Christmas staple, reaching their peak in popularity in Victorian England. A dark, spooky time of year. Like most long-standing cultural customs, the precise origin of telling ghost stories at the end of the year is unknown, largely because it began as an oral tradition without written records. But according to Sarah Cleto, a folklorist specializing in British literature and co-founder of the Catterhoe School of Folklore and Fantastic, the season around winter solstice has been one of transition and change for a very, very, very long time. The season has provoked oral stories about spooky things in many different countries and cultures all over the world, she says. Furthermore, spooky storytelling gave people something to do during the long, dark evenings before electricity. Long, midwinter nights meant folks had to stop working early, and they spent their leisure hours huddled close to the fire, says Tara Moore, an assistant professor of English at Elizabethtown College author of Victorian Christmas in print and editor of the Vancourt book of Victorian Christmas ghost stories. Plus, you didn't need to be literate to retell the local ghost story. Effects of the Industrialization Revolution It was in Victorian England that telling supernatural tales at the end of the year, specifically during Christmas season, went from an oral tradition to a timely trend. This was in part due to the development of the steam-powered printing press during the Industrial Revolution that made the written word more widely available. This gave Victorians the opportunity to commercialize and commodify existing oral ghost stories, turning them into versions they could sell. Higher liter literacy rates, cheaper printing costs, and more periodicals meant that editors needed to fill pages. Around Christmas time, they figured they could convert the old storytelling tradition into a printed version. People who moved out of their towns and villages into larger cities still wanted access to the supernatural sagas they heard around the fireplace growing up. Fortunately, Victorian authors like Elizabeth Gaskell, Margaret Oliphant, Arthur Conan Doyle worked through the fall to cook up these stories and have them ready to print in time for Christmas. Industrialization not only provided tools to distribute spooky stories, uncertainty during the era also fueled interest in the genre, says Brittany Warman, a folklorist specializing in gothic literature and co-founder of the Cotterhoe School of Folklore and the Fantastic. Interest was driven, she says, by the rise in the industrialization, the rise of science, and the looming fall of Victorian Britain as a superpower. All of these things were in people's minds and made the world seem a little darker and a little bit scarier. Stories find a wide-ranging audience. Telling horror-filled holiday tales continued to be a family affair in England, even when they were read rather than recited. We know from illustrations and diaries that whole families read these periodicals together, Moore says. The popularity of Victorian Christmas ghost stories also transcended socio-economic status, according to Moore. They were available to read everywhere, for a cheap publication, to expensive Christmas annuals, 
that middle-class ladies would show off on their coffee tables. Their broad audience was reflected in the stories themselves, which sometimes centered around the working-class characters, and other times took place in, in haunted manor mansions. These upper-class settings were intended to invite readers from all classes into an idealized upper-crust Christmas, the types today's fans of Downton Abbey still enjoy as entertainment. The Charles Dickens Effect Charles Dickens' 1843 novella, A Christmas Carol, has forever linked the British author with the holiday season, but his contributions to Christmas in Victorian England, including the traditions of telling and reading ghost stories, extend far beyond Jacob Marley's visit to Scrooge. In fact, Cleto says that Dickens plays a huge part in popularizing the genre in England. He wrote a bunch of different Christmas novellas, several of which included ghosts, specifically, and then he started editing more and more Christmas ghost stories from other people, and working those into magazines he was already editing, and then just caught like wildfire. Dickens also helped shape Christmas literature in general. Moore says, by formalizing expectations about themes like forgiveness and reunion during the holiday season. American Christmas traditions? More syrupy than spooky. Although the countless trends made their way from England to America during the Victorian era, the telling of ghost stories during the Christmas season was not one that really caught on. A Christmas Carol was an immediate bestseller in the United States. But at the time of its publication, Dickens was arguably the most famous writer in the world, and already wildly popular. The novella's success in the U.S. likely had more to do with Dickens' existing fan base than it did Americans' interest in incorporating the supernatural into Christmas. American Christmas scenes and stories tended to be syrupy sweet, Moore explains. There were a few American writers of the period trying to put Victorian-style Christmas ghost stories into American culture, including Nathaniel Hawthorne and J Henry James. Washington Irving made a similar and earlier attempt, slipping the supernatural into Christmas-themed short stories published in 1819 and 1820. Warman theorizes that American reluctance to embrace the Christmas ghost story tradition had to do, at least in some part, with the country's attitudes towards things like magic and superstitions. In America, we generally had a bit of resistance to the supernatural in a way that European countries didn't. When you came to America, you came with a fresh start. You came with a secular mindset and the idea that you were leaving the past behind. And some of these spooky superstitions were thought of, of being as part of the past. Another reason telling spooky stories never took off as a Christmas tradition in the United States was because it was more firmly established as a Halloween tradition, thanks to the Irish and Scottish immigrants. That really impacted culture here because they brought with them the concept similar to Halloween and became, for America, the time period for ghosts. Traces of the tradition. Other than A Christmas Carol, there are another piece of pop culture that reflects the Victorian Christmas traditions. A single line from a song written and released in 1963 by American musicians, first recorded by Andy Williams. The song, It's the Most Wonderful Time of the Year, lists scary ghost stories as one of the highlights of the holiday season. Although it's unclear why the writers of the song include the tradition, Cleto says that it's possible that the lyric is referenced to Dickens' A Christmas Carol. It's only the one text, she notes, but it's such a big deal here in the U.S. and the U.K. 
and it's pretty much all the Americans know about Christmas ghost stories in isolation. Alright, very cool to know about a little bit of history. Although we are talking about creepy Christmas stories and the tradition of telling them, we can't leave out the creepiness of the winter solstice, which is right around Christmas time as well. Around December 21st, if I to be correct. Alright, so I pulled up an article on bustle.com of 11 creepy things about the winter solstice that you didn't know by Ali Hosick. Alright. So let's get into it. Number one, the word solstice comes from the Latin term for the sun stands still. Since the sun reaches its southernmost point on this day and then reverses its direction, I understand why it makes sense to call the event a solstice from the Latin word solstitium, according to date and time. But that doesn't mean that the sheer idea of a sun normally, normally in motion coming to a halt doesn't totally freak me out. Number two, historically, the winter solstice was viewed as a time of death. According to Mental Floss, cultures throughout history have observed the winter solstice as a celebration of death and have marked it with ceremonial fires and slaughters. I guess this one's less creepy if you happen to believe that death brings rebirth with it, as some of these cultures did, but still. Number three, some people believe that Stonehenge was built to celebrate the winter solstice. There's so much mystery around Stonehenge's history and existence that pretty much anything related to it gives me the creeps. While there's a lot of theories about where this stone monument came from and why it's there, some experts believe that the design appears to correspond with the winter and summer solstice, according to the farmer's almanac. Number four. The winter solstice doesn't affect daylight hours equally for everyone. While sun lovers everywhere will rejoice in longer days after the winter solstice, the rate at which those days will get longer is actually different based on your geography. Weird, right? Per date and time, people in the northern hemisphere will see more rapid increase in daylight hours if they live in more northern latitudes. Number five new worlds have been discovered on the winter solstice. In 1620, the pilgrims arrived in Plymouth on the winter solstice. In 1898, Pierre and Marie Curie discovered radium and ushered in a new age of science on the winter solstice. In 1968, the Apollo 8 launched and became the first manned moon mission on the winter solstice. Coincidence? I think not. There's definitely something eerie, if exciting and promising, in the air. This is the one I'm excited about. Number six, some cultures believe that dark spirits emerge on the winter solstice. All right. Iranian, Celtic, and Germanic traditions say that different types of evil spirits emerge on this occasion. Certain cultures would even stay up all night on the winter solstice so they could avoid first-hand encounters with the darkness. Number seven, Stonehenge aligns with the sun on the solstice. Number eight, the 2012 winter solstice was thought by some to be the end of the world. 
Number nine, meteorologists mark the start of the winter on a different day. Number 10, some people believe that Christmas should be celebrated on the winter solstice. Because there's no actual date associated with Jesus' birth in the Bible, there are theories out there that early pagans actually celebrated Christmas on the winter solstice. Symbolically, this makes sense, since the day marks a rebirth and a new season, but it's unsettling to think that we could be so wrong about such a major holiday. Number 11, the winter solstice was once closely linked to famine. Right. Very cool. Let's see what else they got. Very cool article. Alright, so I just thought I would include that in there because the winter solstice is part of the timing of the year. Alright, we're staying over at Bustle, but a different article. Seven terrifying festive ghost stories that aren't just a Christmas carol. By Eof Hanna. Alright. Number one. A Christmas Carol. They lied. <laughs> by Charles Dickens. A Christmas Carol by Dickens, published way back in 1843, is undeniably the most beloved of Christmas ghost stories. Ebenezer Scrooge is a miserly, miserable man who hates Christmas and seems to have long since forgotten how to perform acts of human kindness. In this story, he's visited not only by the ghosts of his dead colleague, but also the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future. With real talk, truly terrifying results. But Christmassy, more Christmassy than your nan getting drunk on a brandy butter. Number two. Oh, Whistle and I'll Come to My Lad by M.R. James. M.R. James is arguably one of the best ever British writers of ghost stories, and according to the BFI, this particular tale of his has undergone multiple film and TV adaptations, including a version from Jonathan Miller that went out at Christmas time in 1968. Oh, Whistle and I'll Come to You, My Lad is based in a made-up English town called Burnstow, a snooty Cambridge professor is on his holidays by the seaside when he finds an old whistle with a mysterious, unreadable Latin inscription on the side. Without knowing that the message is in fact a warning, he blows the whistle. After that, he's haunted by terrible nightmares and images of dark, mysterious figures. Not one to watch with the kids. Alright, number three, Dark Christmas by Jeanette Winterson. A modern tale written by Jeanette Winterson for The Guardian, Dark Christmas is truly glorious take on a classic genre. A woman and her friends abscond to High Fallen House, a Victorian manor house in the countryside, to celebrate Christmas. All sounds super idyllic, right? Well, not really. I mean, not to the po point too fine a point of it, but this group of pals are basically asking to be haunted. Things go from cute and Christmassy to spooky when a creepy old nativity set is found in the attic. Number four, The Turn of the Screw by Henry James. Henry James' Christmas time classic was turned into a very successful drama for the BBC back in 2009, 
which starred Downton Abbey's own Lady Mary, Michelle Dockery. It's the story of a governess who finds herself in charge of two recently orphaned children in a country house. While working, she sees the ghostly figures of a man and a woman, but are they in her mind, or are they actually spooky specters? Throughout the turn of the screw, the governess desperately tries to protect the children from the figures, with terrifying consequences. Number 5. Dubliners, The Dead, James Joyce this short story, a part of the Dubliners, isn't technically meant to be a ghost story, but there's no denying its impossibly spooky tale. It's set in wintry Dumplin of a Christmas night. The final scene in the short story is narrated by the wife and main character. She tells of her first love and how he died from pneumonia after waiting outside her window during a snowstorm. Joyce's language is haunting and paints a picture of how ghosts are far more than just spectral apparitions. Number 6. Smee. Smee is a short story in one of A.M. Barrage's collections and is truly chilling. A group of young people messing about on Christmas Eve decide to play a game of hide and seek in a spooky house in which a young girl died years before. During the story, as the anticipation builds, the group wonder, is there another person playing alongside of them? Number 7. Ophidil. Another of the Guardian's temporary ghost stories. One second. This one is set in Nigeria and written by the formidable Kamanda Ngozi Adichie. So you know it's got to be good. A family's life is disrupted by their new neighbors who seem impossibly attractive but creepily e eerie. This story features a type of haunting that's very much open to interpretation. After reading all these spooky tales, a crowded house will feel an awful more enjoyable than it did before. Merry Spookmas! Alright, so those are some stories that you can check out. Let's see here. The Missing Cookies. This comes from the Moonlit Road. Back when I was just a baby, my folks started a Christmas tradition that might sound familiar to many of you out there. On Christmas Eve, they'd lead a, a plate of cookies by the fireplace for Santa, a small pile of hay for his reindeer. Santa's brother, of course. At that time, I was too young to remember her doing this, but there'd be nothing left on the plate of cookies. Oh, I skipped a lot. <laughs> Santa's going to be hungry after such a long journey, Mom used to say to my older brother. Of course, at that time, I was too young to remember her doing this, but there'd be nothing left on the plate but crumbs. So that was sure fireproof that Santa had indeed visited our home that night. When I got to be around five years old, my family moved into a new house just south of Nashville. Well, it wasn't really new. It was an historic historian or Victorian house that had fallen into disrepair. I remember it being kind of spooky. Looking with boarded up windows, creaky floors, yellowing wallpaper peeling off the walls, and a strong musty smell, as if they hadn't let fresh air in the place in years. It's what you would generally call a fixer-upper. 
and it was the perfect project for the industrious father. What my dad liked best about the place was its large rolling front yard. Now you know how in every neighborhood there seems to be one family that goes hog wild with the Christmas lights during the holidays. Well that was my family. My dad strung hundreds of twinkling lights around the yard, bought huge plastic snowmen, elves, candy canes, and a manger scene. He even rigged up a giant lifelike Santa sleigh on the roof, flashing brightly for the whole world to see. And every December night, a long line of cars would drive by our home, some folks coming from miles away just to see our display. Now for some neighbors, such a holiday tourist attraction would quickly become a nuisance, but our neighbors seemed quite happy about the festive spirit. They told us that this, the strange old woman who lived in the house before us never seemed to celebrate Christmas or any other holiday. She had lived in the house for years long before our neighborhood was built around her. She was rarely seen, and her house stood dark and silent, with its curtains tightly drawn. The neighborhood kids believed she was a witch, and whispered ghastly tales about her at Halloween. And when she suddenly passed away, the house remained a gloomy and empty ghost on the street. So our festive Christmas tradition was a welcome sight to the neighbors. But about a year after we moved into the house, I began to notice that one of our traditions had become conspicuously absent. My parents weren't leaving the plate of refreshments out for Santa and his reindeer. When I asked why not, my mom quickly told me that since we had moved, we were now one of the first homes on Santa's route, so now he wasn't hungry when he came to our home. In fact, if we let him fill himself up with cookies, he'd be too full to bring toys to the other children around the world. Well, that excuse didn't fly with me, so the next Christmas I asked Mom the same question. She gave me the same answer, but by then I had begun to notice that I wasn't getting a lot of gifts I really wanted. She never, He never brought me the horse or the rocket ship or the baby sister I specifically asked for. Was Santa getting mad because we weren't leaving him cookies anymore? One night I eavesdropped on a whispered conversation in my parents' bedroom. I'd gotten really upset at mom that day for refusing to leave cookies out and now I could hear her talking to my dad about it. They talked about how when we first moved into the old house someone or something had eaten the cookies we left by the fireplace. Maybe it was a rat or a hungry burglar but nothing else in the house was touched. So since they couldn't figure out what happened they did away with the tradition altogether. I felt like screaming through the wall. Of course someone ate the cookies. It was Santa. So that Christmas Eve, I decided to take matters into my own hands. I wasn't about to miss out on the trip to Alaska that I had politely asked Santa for. So in the middle of the night, when my parents were fast asleep, I snuck downstairs and left a plate piled high with the chocolate chip cookies by the fireplace Mom had made. The fireplace was in the living room, and about two doors down from where the Christmas tree was. So I couldn't tell if Santa had come or gone, but I hadn't heard noises from downstairs all night, so I was relatively certain that Santa hadn't arrived yet. When I went back to bed, but I was way too excited to sleep that night, so after an hour had passed, I decided to go downstairs and see if Santa had eaten his cookies. I tiptoed down the stairs, keenly aware of where each creaky board was. 
As I got to the foot of the stairs and began creeping down the cold, dark hallway, I heard a sound that pricked my skin with excitement. It was the sound of a plate being lifted off the fireplace, followed by a ravenous munching noises. It crossed my mind to leave Santa alone, but how many kids have the opportunity to meet the man himself? So I crept up to the living room doorway and slowly peeked around the corner. What I saw next froze me in my tracks. Santa wasn't in the room at all, but somebody else was. A very old woman sat on the hearth, hungrily devouring the cookies. She was dressed in a flimsy, tattered bathrobe with a flowered pattern long faded by age, bones heaving up and down with each pained breath. Her face looked deathly thin and pale, and her bony hands trembled as she lifted each cookie to her mouth. But she had had a warm smile, which she suddenly flashed at me as she saw me at the doorway. I hope you don't mind, she said in a polite-mannered voice. Your mother makes the best cookies. Now when I tell you she said that, I don't mean she said it out loud. To my shock, her lips didn't move. I heard it exactly what she said in my mind. My name's Eva, she said. I guess you figured out by now that I'm a ghost. Does that scare you? Well, I guess older folks might have been terrified sitting there speaking with the dead. But for a seven-year-old with an unwavering belief of things like Santa Claus, a ghost didn't bother me much, so I shook my head no. Good, she said, and motioned for me to sit beside her. You know, there are many things that are scary in life. Ghosts are scary to some folks. But you know what the scariest thing of all is? When I shook my head again, she replied, The scariest thing in life is being alone. And if you're alone, the holidays only make it worse. She then told me about the years she lived in the house. She was born and raised there, raised a family of her own, and then watched everyone leave one by one. And when her husband passed away, each of her children had married and moved away, she found herself alone in that big, empty house. Eva's children were too consumed with their own lives to spend time with her. Lonely and depressed, she lost all interest in the past hobbies, like card games and reading. She never watched TV or listened to the radio. She would rarely talk to friends and slowly lost interest in eating. But the worst part was losing my memory, she said to me. I used to hate it when people would say, you remember when we used to do such and such? And I couldn't remember. She sighed heavily and said, it was like someone else lived my life. With a family too busy to care about her, she had left in the world was the old house. Even when wealthy developers moved in and built new homes around her, she refused to sell at any price. But the worst time, she told me, were the holidays. The outside world was telling her that she was supposed to be happy. She would see the twinkling lights outside, hear the neighborhood carolers. Without a family, those joyous sights and sounds were like mocking reminders of her loneliness. She entombed herself deeper and deeper into the house and rarely going outside. She died alone in her bed, and even in her death, she could not escape the house. When she would open the door or window, a dark, cold, terrifying darkness was all she could see, so she was forced to roam the house as a ghost. She turned to me and smiled, tears welling up in her eyes. You remember that, child. It's much scarier to be alone than dead. By this time, I had totally forgotten about Santa Claus, her presence. Even at such a young age, I was saddened by this lonely ghost in front of me. So I suddenly blurted out, 
then why don't you celebrate Christmas with us? Eva smiled and looked at the clock on the wall. Christmas is for the living, not the dead, she said. But I'll tell you what you can do. When Christmas comes, make a joyful racket in this house. Enjoy your time with your family. Play music, string up lights, have parties. Make this house a happy place again. Then I'll know I'm not alone. She then winked at me and said, Oh, and leave me a plate of your mom's cookies every once in a while, will you? And with that, she disappeared like a fine mist into the darkness. So every year after that, I did what she asked. Each Christmas Eve, I would leave a plate of cookies for her in a different part of the house, so Mom wouldn't suspect anything. Come Christmas morning, the cookie plate was always empty. As I grew into an adult and had children of my own, I settled down in the same old house. And like my mom before me, I told my daughter that she had to leave a plate of cookies out for Santa. He'd be hungry for his travels, after all. And every Christmas morning, my daughter would awake with excitement and proclaim, The cookies are all gone! And I would smile at her and say, Yes. Santa must have really been hungry, but I knew it was for our resident Christmas ghost, who had spot stopped by, and she was now at peace for another year. Alright, very cool. That was written by Craig Dominey. Very cool story. All right, let's take a break. All right, and our last article of the night is going to go to allthatsinteresting.com, where they have an article called The Story of Krampus, the Anti-Santa Who Punishes Naughty Children with Season's Beatings. <laughs> All right. It's by All That's Interesting. So let's jump into the article. A half-goat demon said to be the son of the Norse god of the underworld, Krampus punishes naughty children at Christmas time and drags some to hell. They say he comes on the evening of December 5th, a night called Krampusnacht. You can usually hear him coming as the soft steps of his bare human foot alternate alternate with the clip-clop of his cloven hoof. And when you see him, you instantly notice that he's armed with a birch branch, so he can beat naughty children. His name is Krampus, and he's the terror of Austria and the Alpine region around Christmas time. But who is Krampus? Why is he known as the anti-Santa? And how did this disturbing legend come about in the first place? Who is Krampus, St. Nick's evil counterpart? Though descriptions of Krampus' appearance vary from region to region, some things remain consistent. He is said to have pointed, devilish horns and a long, snake-like tongue. His body is covered in coarse fur, and he looks like a goat crossed with a demon. His body and arms are strung with chains and bells, and he carries a large sack or basket on his back to carry off evil children. There's even a variation of a female Krampus who carry off naughty men. Krampus comes to town the night before the feast of St. Nicholas and visits all the houses to dish out his punishments. If you're lucky, you might get swatted with a birch branch. If you're not, you'll wind up in the sack. After that, your fate is anyone's guess. 
The legend suggests she might be eaten as a snack, drowned in a river, or even dropped off, at, dropped off in hell. Sometimes Krampus is accompanied by Saint Nicholas, who isn't known to bother himself with naughty children in Central Europe. Instead, he focuses on handing out presents to well-behaved kids, and then leaves the rest up to his sinister counterpart. How did Krampus become a regular part of holiday fun in places like Austria, Bavaria, the Czech Republic, and Slovenia? Nobody is entirely certain, but mostly people believe that Krampus originally hails from the Alpine region's pagan past. His name comes from the German word Krampen, which means claw. He bears a striking resemblance to the old Norse legends about the son of hell, the god of the underworld. It's a compelling theory, especially since Krampus' appearance coincides with a number of pagan winter rites, most notably one that sends people parading through the streets to disperse the ghosts of winter. Over the years of Christianity gained popularity in the region, aspects of Krampus' appearance began to shift to fall in line with Christian beliefs. The chains, for example, were not originally a feature of Hell's ghoulish son, it is believed that Christians added them to evoke the binding of the devil, and that wasn't the only change they made. Under Christian hands, Krampus took a number of more devil devilish qualities, like the basket that he uses to carry wicked children to hell. From there, it isn't hard to see how Krampus, already associated with the winter festivities, might then have been incorporated into Christian traditions and legend of St. Nicholas around Christmas time. The Modern Krampus and Krampus Knot Celebrations Today, Krampus has his own celebration on the day before the Feast of St. Nicholas in the Alpine region. Every evening on December 5th, a knight called Krampus Knock, elegantly dressed St. Nick's, pairs up with the monstrously outfitted Krampuses and make the rounds to homes and businesses, offering gifts and playful threats. Some people exchange Krampus Knock greeting cards that depict the horned beast alongside festive and funny messages. Sometimes, large groups of people dress up as Krampus and run amok through the streets, chasing friends and passerbys with birch sticks. This activity is especially popular among young men. Tourists who have witnessed this rowdy celebration say that running into a coffee shop won't save you from getting swatted, and the swats aren't exactly gentle, but this, luckily, they're usually confined to the legs, and the festive atmosphere often makes up for the occasional welt. The tradition has become important, in, become an important one in many countries, and has come to include expensive handmade baskets, elaborate costumes, and even parades. Though some complain that the celebration is becoming too commercialized, many aspects of the old festival endure. Krampus masks, for example, are typically carved from wood, and they are the product of significant labor. Artisans often work for months on the costumes, which sometimes end up on display in museums as examples of the living tradition of folk art. Alright, very cool. All right, that does it for today's episode, and thank you for listening today. Again, I'm going to go enjoy some time with my family, 
as we celebrate Christmas Eve today and Christmas tomorrow. And I wish all of you a happy holiday, no matter what you celebrate. And feel free to tell a ghost story or two and keep that tradition alive. Alright, with that being said, make sure to join us over on our Facebook group, Paranormal Stories Spooky Shiz. Spooky Shiz is in parentheses. And it's a great way to connect with me and send me your stories for future episodes. Alright, I'm Chappie, and stay spooky, my friends. Thank you.